our Valentine's Day hangover. Two women, one best-selling BDSM novel adaptation. E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey has become a cultural phenomenon among women of all ages, alternately pilloried for its poor prose and alleged endorsement of sexual violence. It's fundamentally a tale of discovery. The 21-year-old virgin Anastasia Steele becomes the submissive of billionaire Christian Grey. The hotly anticipated film adaptation by Sam Taylor Johnson, which helped to drive sales of the book, is less than satisfying. In reviewing the film for Art Forum, Melissa Anderson wrote, quote, Rapid edits during the sex scenes, whether vanilla or those involving spanking, blindfolds, restraints, etc. You read the book. I did. I sat at this table last Thursday and read all 513 pages. In a single go. Um, I started reading it the night before and fell asleep at page 21. <laughs> uh, <laughs> How long before sex stuff starts happening in the book? It's pretty much right at the 100-page mark. Okay. And then pretty much every other paragraph, <laughs> there is going to be a hardened dong, blindfolds, but also interspersed with the X-rated stuff is the horrific prose, <laughs> the horrific voice of E.L. James, who the, the book is written um, from the first person point of view of Anastasia Steele, yes. the 21-year-old virgin, recent college graduate, mm -hmm. English literature major, huge fan of Thomas Hardy. Uh, but for whatever reason, Anastasia Steele's psyche is split into her inner goddess and her subconscious. Mm -hmm. And both of these parts of her inner life are anthropomorphized in the most baffling way. How would I say this? Um, I guess because of the MPAA, there's a lot of stuff that they could not show. So there's really only about four or five sex scenes in the film. Yeah, and most of which I thought were exceedingly tame. And it does make one think about what an R rating means in 2015. Yeah. Because if you compare this film with other R-rated films of 30 years ago, yeah. <laughs> like Nine and a Half Weeks or Cat People, it was much more direct much more frank, not quite as coy. I mean, just all those rapid cuts, all those mm -hmm. fragmented body parts. Yes. It just seems so prissy. Yeah. The almost hottest scene where it's just, it's, it was, it really was just, um, it's where Beyonce is playing, where he takes her in. He's yeah. showing her the writing crop on the hand. Um, he says at this one point, he's like, you know, I want you to be comfortable in your nudity. Mm -hmm. And she's wearing panties, and it's like this. To it's like there's no there's no greater moment of like you will absolutely not get what you wanted to see from yeah. this movie. It, was, it I also felt a lot of the time when they're just talking that I could have watched it on an iPhone, or you could watch it on a plane on one of those tiny little seat monitors, and you would not miss anything visually. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Sam Taylor Johnson, the director, mm -hmm. who got her start as a visual artist. I remember, I guess that about the, tw when Anastasia first comes to Christian Gray's apartment, there seemed to be a very strenuous effort on Taylor Johnson's part 
to do some kind of homage to Cirque or Fassbinder. I just remember an abundance of mirrors reflecting surfaces. Mm -hmm. And there's something about the... Well, it's all marble. His entire apartment is like, or there are sections of his, it's like multiple levels, I think. Yeah, oh, and also the scenes of Anastasia very dramatically descending a staircase. Mm -hmm. Again, that seemed to be a kind of desperate attempt to make some kind of gesture toward classic Hollywood melodrama. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are not successful attempts. (laughs) Um, but something, yeah, in the very shininess and airiness and sprawl of Christian Grey's lair yeah. reminded me of those vast parlors that you would see in 1930s cinema. Oh, absolutely. But, but again, that, that even that moment is kind of undone by the obviously CGI'd downtown Seattle yeah. that we see, or yeah. downtown Whistler, British Columbia, wherever they, they shot the film. <laughs> It's so yeah. I I was I was sort of confused a lot of because she's going to school in like Vancouver or something. Oh well, it's. I also I had a bit of trouble following this in the book. She she goes to what's called University of Vancouver in Washington State. Oh. Okay. But she lives in Portland, Oregon. Okay. If I'm remembering correctly. Okay. Well, I guess, and I I'm imagining that the Pacific Northwest setting grows out of the fact that the whole genesis of Fifty Shades of Grey is in E.L. James writing Twilight fan fiction. Yes. And Twilight, we all know, is set in Washington State. Because yes. I, I remember thinking, why would this Londoner, E.L. James, it, there just seemed to be something so fetishistic about her focus on the Pacific Northwest, and I, I'm assuming... Well, yeah, and it, this very much follows the narrative, like the YA narrative, like, you are the one. Mm-hmm. Like, because she, I mean, obviously that's that's not a trope limited to, you know, <laughs> to any genre. But this in particular, it's just, it seems like, you know, you know exactly that he's, like, falling in love with her or whatever, you know, because it's like, well, I've never felt this way before. Oh, don't touch me, but I'm going to kiss you. And, like, because I, I, kept, I kept expecting for there to be moments of, subversion and I was just repeatedly denied (laughs) just completely well I mean again I think that sort of reflects the spirit of the book I mean the Mm -hmm. the book there is there's a lot of fucking yeah and yes there are floggers and I guess we can call them for lack of a better term non-conventional sexual practices but what's curious speaking of Anastasia's mother in the film, she's definitely bumped up several socioeconomic rungs. Oh. When, when Anastasia goes to her mom's house in Savannah, they're having dinner. And do you remember the very beautiful pool? Yeah, and, they're, and they belong to a country club. Or what could be, I think, it's, yeah. like it's this giant... like. And in the yeah. book, her, her mother and um, her fourth husband are quite solidly middle class or mm-hmm. maybe even lower middle class. So yeah, I was confused by that status upgrade. My friend had pointed this out and I think it's an, I think it's sort of interesting where he was sort of, he actually really liked the film and he was saying that it's fundamentally about giving consent 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just her fight to give consent. And I and immediately I thought, well, yes, that's true. And you see that perhaps most evidently in the scene where she's binge drinking with her, you know, her roommate mm-hmm. and her friend Jose. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, <laughs> and he tries to make a move on her. So it's like, this is obviously sort of like a comment or it's like, this is an alternative to rape, you know, like campus rape culture. Like he's very much, he's, that's exactly, like it's, and it's so fucked up because he is the only person of color with like a real line, like actual lines in the thumb and the rest is just like, it's, it's really, I don't know. Well, also this idea of giving consent is even more foregrounded in the film than it is in the book because in the final scene of the movie when I mean which is that scene is no but it's completely incoherent and does replicate the complete incoherence of the book Mm -hmm. that moment when okay let's follow the logic Anastasia has agreed to try out BDSM and or very like tamer practices of BDSM. Yeah. And it's clear in both the book and the film that she receives tremendous carnal gratification from this. Yeah. But then there's just a moment where she kind of pathologizes it and says to Christian, okay, show me what you really want to do to me. I, I, it, it is just a complete inconsistency. But anyway, yeah. so in, in the film, after that incoherent scene, when she gets in the elevator... Mm-hmm. And he's about to approach her. Mm-hmm. In the film, Anastasia says, you know, quite, quite pronouncedly, no, stop. That is not in the book. That is mm-hmm. not in the book at all. I mean, the scene where, they, where she's leaving him, that, that takes yeah. place. But this no, stop. I mean, these are the words yeah. of the, what no means and what stop means and respecting people's limits and yeah. consent. Yeah, that seems to have been definitely put in yeah. to the film to touch on these discussions that have been going on for the past year about date rape and assaults on college campuses. But you can see the seams showing. I mean, it it just, it seemed like a very desperate attempt to be au courant, you know, or maybe as a way to preempt, I mean, I I do not understand these arguments, to preempt... (laughs) criticism that oh the, the the film and the book are endorsing sexual violence or sexual abuse which really isn't the case no. at all no i mean again returning this idea that it's like this is an this is an r-rated film and the most outre thing you could include in an r-rated film or the message of it could be consent is good like that's it is, it's like that's such a step massive step back from like things that you know were happening in the 80s or even you know like i it's it's always tempting to romanticize the past but it's just like this is where we are as a society like that's like a subversive thing like or like i made a point about that good for me like it was just so and it's also just more of the point it's just so boring to watch to watch well, these people sort of like there cuz there's so much so much contract negotiation that it's like it, the, that whole 40 minute stretch where it's like, is she going to sign the contract? Like the mm-hmm. overdesigned board meeting that's mm-hmm. sort of like warm, like oranges and mm-hmm. browns. Mm-hmm. And then they get served sushi. Yes. Because he's so rich. He just gets brought up by the battalion of <laughs> Tippy Hedron like uh, assistants. Yeah, he's just surrounded by, like, his whole office is staffed by these hot women. 
you don't understand what industry he's in, but it's all... Well, well, yes, in the book... Hedron Factory. Yeah, (laughs) well, which... And we're seeing the actual product of the Hedron Factory, (laughs) granddaughter Dakota Johnson. Um, Yeah, in the book and also in the film, it's just mentioned that he is uh, in the telecommunications field. Something we just have to take on faith, but that he has the side interest in uh, curing world hunger, which also factors into his backstory. But Mm -hmm. the thing about, about, about the contract and the board meeting... When that was happening, both in the book and the movie, I thought, oh my god, this is a corollary to another page-to-screen transfer, Gone Girl, oh god. in which both <laughs> really, in Gone Girl, you hear more than once, marriage is hard work, mm-hmm. and that truism is played out to its grimmest extreme. In Fifty Shades of Grey, book and film, it really literalizes that well, I mean, there's no marriage yet. I think they get married in the third book of the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy. Of course, they have yes. to. But this idea that you know, like relationships are hard work. Yeah. And yeah, yes, quite literally, because we are negotiating contracts and having business meetings. He gives her a computer to do research. Like it's yes, like, like this guy, this this guy's a boss basically. Yeah. Like it's so, and this was in Duke of Burgundy as well. Um, that the idea that it's like, well, actually, it's the sub that controls the relationship, mm. which is well. Spe- if you ever speak to a person who is in a subdom relationship, they'll be like, that is absolutely not the case, or it's not that simple. Let's say. Yeah, but I mean, this is just common sense, right? Yeah. All relationships, even those that are even the most vanilla of relationships, there's a constant fluidity between who's the sub and who's the dom. I mean, this yeah. is just. But but when you actually sort of, I don't know if this is the right term, theatricalize it and say, yes, we are in a BDSM relationship. I'll be the sub, I'll be the dumb. Of course, like, the the power is never constant. It's always yeah. shifting. I mean, this is, I think, common sense to adults. <laughs> which is why, when, when you were mentioning a moment ago, Violet, about how there are many stretches of the film are boring, because what is more soporific than someone pointing out and describing their gadgets. You know, this is a flogger and this does that. Well, that's another why I think, because it's like, it's like, you, you know, you have to stand before the tribunal of the da-da-da-da. Well, what is that? Well, the tribunal administers this yeah. thing. It's like, like, why are these fucking this... terms of everything? It's just like, can we just like, like, you don't need it because ultimately it devolves into shoot a shooting match. Every, mm-hmm. every YA film or like, it all comes down to spectacle. And then this is sort of like, you really get no spectacle. It's just this discussion of, you know, well, this is, you know, these are nipple clamps and what's a butt plug? Like, really? Yeah, like, your, your boner's going to completely wilt. <laughs> it's just the most unsexy thing. Yeah. In your art form piece, you had mentioned that you saw, you know, you've seen women reading. At yes, very, all over the world. All over, literally <laughs> all over the world. I did see women who were moms mm-hmm. reading the book, the, the actual physical book with the cover, I mean, with the title emblazoned, yeah. and um, with their children next to them. And I just thought that there was something really kind of great about that because, I mean, the book had become, was so staggeringly popular by then. Mm-hmm. And so it was clear <clears throat> that by reading this book, people knew, oh, that's a dirty book, that's a naughty book. But that these women, with young children, were reading it 
quite avidly and a really exciting display of what's the what 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 word can i give it of of enjoyment or of pleasure i guess yeah <clears throat> and i mean there is i don't want to say performative but it mm-hmm. is sort of it's it is a like it's a mild fuck you because it's like i don't feel obligated to cover this cover i have children next to me and i can be both a sexual being and have children and it's not weird but i mean it's also it's just so bad that's the problem. The, what's, what's bad? The, 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 the actual book is so bad, though. It is really some of the worst writing I've encountered <laughs> in my in my yeah. life. Um, and it, it, I mean, like, Twilight, it has a fundamentally sort of um, conservative message because they're, you know, across these three books, you know, it's sort of like, well, I have this weird thing about me. Oh, okay. And then it's sort of devolves into like, well, we're married and we have normal sex. Or is that not the case? Uh, like I mentioned just a moment ago, they, I know that they do Christian and Anastasia get married. Mm-hmm. I think in book three of the trilogy, but I'm not certain. It does not happen here. I guess the one mildly subversive thing about the book and the film replicates this is that she ends saying goodbye to him. There's no reconciliation. Well, I mean, I guess maybe it isn't that subversive because mm-hmm. it sets you up for the second installment. But uh, I never read any of the Twilight books. I saw all of the movies. Uh-huh. And for me, what was the huge draw was Kristen Stewart, mm. who I think is extremely talented, much in, the, much in the same way that, as we were talking about earlier, I think Dakota Johnson, in a not very interesting role, really imbues it with um, quite a lot of depth. And I think Kristen Stewart did something similar in the Twilight franchise, which is this very touching evocation of all the emotions teenagers feel. And that was very exciting to watch. It is not especially exciting to read in the Fifty Shades of Grey book, but um, I think the casting of Dakota Johnson was, was really spectacular. Well, say more about that, because you're a fan. So you've been a fan since um, five-year engagement, well, at least. <laughs> well, I mean, my, my first introduction to Dakota Johnson, who, let's just point out, for those who don't know, <laughs> Dakota Johnson has a very prestigious lineage. She is the daughter of Melanie Griffith and Don Johnson. But even more excitingly for me <laughs> is that she is the granddaughter of Tippi Hedren. And I was thinking, Tippi Hedren's greatest screen achievement to this lady at least, is in Hitchcock's Marnie. Now, I think you can draw a line from Marnie to Fifty Shades of Grey. Because if you think of Marnie, the relationship between um, Tibby Hedren, who plays the title character, Marnie, and Sean Connery's character, that, I mean, it's never explicitly so, but that is pretty much a BDSM relationship. Oh, I mean, totally. it's, it is by far Hitchcock's most perverse film and thus his high masterpiece. But <laughs> anyway, uh, so I first saw Dakota Johnson in a really dumb romantic comedy from 2012 called Five Year Engagement, which stars Jason Segel and Emily Blunt. And during a moment when Emily Blunt and Jason Segel's relationship there's a rift, they're not speaking. 
Jason Siegel takes up with a character played by Dakota Johnson. And she's highly energetic. And there's a moment when um, Jason Siegel says he's getting back with Emily Blunt. And Dakota Johnson's character just goes into this rage. And it's this like two-minute aria of, of absolute disgust and indignation. And she has a line where she says something like, because Jason Siegel and Emily Blunt are at least 10 or 15 years older than Dakota Johnson's character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She says something like, yeah, why don't you two get back together and just check each other for lumps? And I thought, oh, what a mean thing to say. But there was such fire and vitriol on the way she delivered it. And she's on screen for maybe five minutes, but she was, I, can, I still remember her, like there's a scene of her in a Zumba class. She just had a lot of charisma. Mm-hmm. And... Well, she really, she really, because the, the tick that they sort of make fun of throughout the, you know, the marketing and the, and it sort of builds for that is you know, the, the lip chewing. Yes. And she does it, because I, it was something that I was like, I'm noticing it and it's not annoying. It's like, it was like a legitimate sort of acting tick. It's like, this is what this character does. Yeah. And I thought that I was impressed by that because it's like, if you had given that to someone else. And so, and the way she does it is actually sort of sexual. And like the little sort of, she has these little moments of her body language where she is sort of doing traditional things when you do flirt, you know, pushing back her hair. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like maybe again, the film is more about um, the buildup to sex rather than actual sex. Or sort of just a sexual tension. Because I will say after, you know, they, they sort of have the don't stop. Christian, Anna, mm-hmm. and then faded to black. I just was like, "What?" and mm-hmm. I shouted, "What?" Yeah. <laughs> in the theater because like I was, it, it was sort of like it, it was like I it was it was almost like sort of a masculine thing. Where it's like I was denied release. Like I didn't like there was no sort of like she she refuses him, which I do not think is a feminist gesture because she's denying herself all this pleasure. But it's like this. It it was this weird. There's just. It, I kept waiting for something to happen, and it just never did. Well, you would not feel that way if you read the book. In fact, you'd sort of be, you know, it's, there's a lot of fucking in the book. And so, yeah, I guess there's release over and over and over and over again in the book. I mean, I will say I have slagged E.L. James and her horrible writing. But when she is writing about fucking... Mm -hmm. You know, she keeps it pretty interesting. Or, I mean, I guess she went to Synonym Finder a lot. And (laughs) SynonymFinder.com, thesaurus.com. Those are, she can, those are her more successful sentences in the sex scenes. Um, But, yeah, but I think this feeling of, of being denied is the fact that there's something so prudish about the way the sex is handled. Yeah. Which, which again, to th- going back to these women I've seen in various modes of rail travel reading the book, I mean, that, that was really sexy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or um, a kind of take-charge attitude that's completely absent from the film. He's incredulous that she's a virgin. She, you know, and he's sort of like, well, we have to fix this. And then she immediately goes along with it. You know, she's basically game for all this as you rightly called it, low-level bondage stuff. And it's sort of like, you know, she's she's exploring things, but it's always because she 
towards the end, she says, you know, I'm falling in love with you. Mm-hmm. Like, she wants, she wants to please him. And she, and there's a part of her that can't accept the plot. I mean, maybe I'm just reading too much into it. But there's, obvi- there's like, some part of her that just, like, can't accept the pleasure unto herself. She's like, oh, I can't believe he got me this gift. You know, I can't believe he got me these, uh... Um, Tess of the Durbervilles uh, original first edition. First edition. Yeah. Like I can't believe. Oh my god! It's, I'm sending these back, and like you know, I'm refusing it. But she, she wants this. She, mm-hmm. she like as as creepy as he could ever be, showing up um, to the place where she's having like cocktails with her mother. Yeah, in, in Savannah, Georgia. In Savannah, Georgia. She's still just like, okay. It never again. It's like I don't see anything truly subversive or interesting about that. Well, okay, and I, I will have to point out that there is a, perhaps the most interesting moment in the book is, and I don't think the scene is in the film, or it's it's alluded to quite briefly, but there's a scene in the book where Christian spanks her. Yeah. Not not the flogging that, that leads to her leaving him for good. Because it's so different anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So in the scene in the book where he spank, like he'll, he'll smack her ass and then like caress her butt and put lotion on it, I, it's like it's so obvious that they're gonna get married. <laughs> like, I'm just like it's just bot like the whole thing. As soon as he, like she came into his office, like they're gonna get married. Like I just knew it. Like it's just like it's well, Violet, you'll have to wait to the third <laughs> movie for the wedding scene. Okay. But anyway, so in this the the spanking scene in the book. They, Christian and Anastasia do have this very interesting discussion about where she talks about feeling shame that she actually likes some of the pain or that she thought that she should feel, um, that she should just be flooded with feelings of shame and how it was confusing because it actually felt good. Yeah. That I thought was quite interesting. Totally. That's a kind of psychological depth into... The thin line between pleasure and pain or how we respond to it, it's pretty much entirely absent yeah. from the movie. I would say that's probably that lack of psychological depth. It's this idea that, you know, he's this cipher. It's like, you don't know what's going on. He has this mysterious past. And it's like, really, she's the one who is totally blank. And you don't, you never, like, it's like, you just know that she's getting sucked into this world, but... You know so little about her, like tangible sort of motivations for any, like, you know, she, again, she's just sort of game for everything. And it, with him, it's like, well, I have this complicated backstory. The scene with his family is fundamentally more revealing than the scene, you know, the scenes with her family. It's this sort of false thing where it's like, she's, she's a blank where you can project yourself onto, but then even if you do, there's no pleasure there. <clears throat> I'm not sure I would agree with that. And I think it's because, again, I just find Dakota Johnson such a fascinating screen presence. I mean, and very charismatic. So, But again, I mean, I don't know. You, you have special knowledge. Yeah. You've yes. <laughs> I have Mason, Masonic Temple-like levels of secret knowledge involving the Fifty Shades of Grey. Can we talk about, can we shift to him, even though he's so boring? The, the actor who plays him, and then just as a concept, kind of boring, but... Well, I mean, in all defense of Mr. Jamie Dornan... He, he was oh, great okay. in The Falls. He was great I, in The I Falls. I did... 
I did. Uh, my lady friend has been watching The Fall, and so she showed me a clip. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, I think this is a burden for a lot of UK actors is that, you know, they have to really flatten their voices. Yes. And some are quite good at it. Some are excellent at it, and you can't really detect a trace. But I think for others, it's much harder. And I think that is the case with Mr. Jamie Dornan. I mean, it just seemed that he, all of his efforts had to be focused on getting those flat vowels out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, he is working with a character that is pretty much a, a, like a, a void, a nullity. Yeah. No, and I mean, I think um, I appreciated that flatness to a point because mm-hmm. um, I mean that's like if you go to a bar like say around Wall Street that's mm-hmm. probably the guy you're gonna run into mm-hmm. like it's it's fine mm-hmm. and it's it, it, but it's just sort of like I don't think you would have had that this particular type of character in something you know before we've before experiencing this sort of like crazy global gentrification that we're currently living through mm-hmm. you know where it's like People are getting priced out of London. People are getting priced out of Berlin. People are getting priced out of New York. Like, this this sort of monumental <clears throat> shift. And it's like, who this character is, again, sort of like, well, what does he do? It's not really clear. You just, Telecommunication. Telecommunication. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this this weird vacuous thing. But it, he wields so much power. And it's just like, it's, it's sort of this internet of things where it's just like, I want, you know, I want a pizza. And then the pizza is here. Or mm-hmm. I want I want my bodyguard to be here. My bodyguard is here. It, it's I mean it's sort of a wish fulfillment thing, but then it's also it's part of this larger socio-economic thing that we're living through right now. And the fact that she's so beguiled by him is it's obviously a part of that. Or at least it would be if they kept her maybe a little bit you know Roseanne level as <laughs> in the book. <laughs> she's yes. from Lanford. <laughs> I want if, to see that movie. If <laughs> only Roseanne Barr had played Anastasia Steele. No, one of the daughters. Like, Sarah Gilbert, they got, they're like, Sarah Gilbert, oh, yes. back in. Yes. Get off that talk show, you're back if in the game. If only lesbian Sarah Gilbert had played <laughs> Anastasia Steele, this would be the Fifty Shades of Grey that we all wanted. No, I mean, I have, I do have fantasies. Because it's like, I read, <laughs> I read, because I read the novel, I mean, yeah. or I read snippets of the novel, yeah. and I'm like... Well, what would it really mean to translate this into, you know, if you're literally, you're doing a faithful adaptation, you're translating this sort of prose into film grammar, and it becomes something like, it's like a John Waters movie, or it becomes like that, that videotape they send, like from Prince of Darkness, where they like send it back through time. Mm. It's just something really scuzzy and lowbrow, but it's trying to tell you something. Like, it, it could have been, it's like this just fantastically missed opportunity. Like, you're sort of going for the wrong things by trying to make it, you know, as you were saying before, this, like, 30s Hollywood thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and that, I think, is the greatest disservice that the film does to the novel, which, by no stretch of the imagination, is a high watermark in literature, but... Just live it! Yeah, well, just... Shoot a sex scene so that we see sex. Don't be so coy. Don't be so prudish. Well, because again, it's like it's really unclear what is MPAA and what is like her directorial choice. 
Yeah, and I mean, Sam Taylor Johnson has done only one feature before this, Nowhere Boy, which was a pretty wan John Lennon biopic. Well, and I do know uh, that E.L. James was heavily involved in the making of the film, and there was a piece on the New York Times website, a feature about the making of the film, Mm -hmm. in which Sam Taylor Johnson did say... In so many words that there were, you know, some clashes. Yes. Uh, that no. there were certain things that, that E.L. James insisted on keeping. How much of the final product was a result of Sam Teller Johnson having to give in to what E.L. James wanted. But, I mean, all we have to judge, really, the rest of the speculation, all we have to judge is what is on the screen. Yeah. And it is a very tepid portrayal of of sex. Yeah. And, and sex that's supposed to be, you know, earth-shattering and so liberating. Yeah. Um, and also, when we were talking earlier about Christian having to pick up and so tediously describe his various, the various items in his playroom... My memory of the film isn't so great, but in nine and a half weeks, doesn't Mickey Rourke just, you know, just puts a blindfold on? There isn't all this explication. Yeah. It's just done. Yeah. And so films, especially a highly anticipated film like this that's tied into a very popular book, Mm -hmm. there's just, I think the other evil force at work is like the branding strategy. Yes. You know? And so I wonder if, Although it's still it's still very confusing to me. The the the, the book is very X-rated. Mm-hmm. And I think the very X the very fact that the book is so X-rated made it so popular. So when you're making the film, if you're gonna appeal to those fans, wouldn't you wanna be true to that essence of the book? Yeah, because it, it is this thing where it's like, oh, the X-rating is a box office killer. You can't do it. And it's like, well, you could with this. Like, this could have been the movie you did that with. People can handle adult things. Well, even just, I mean, in the vanilla sex. You can, yeah, you can show more, like, you can show, you could show a penis. As crazy as that is to show a penis, you could have shown, like, God bless Jamie Dornan's butt. It's a great butt. But not a penis. Not actual sex. Like, there's just, yeah. I mean, I guess the wildest things get in the film is that we see for a fraction of a second, a couple strands of pubic hair. I mean, that's that's about it. Yeah. Like, we see a tiny bit of bush. Yeah. Big deal. Again, about four sex scenes with Manhattan movie prices, that's $3 a sex scene. Just go on the internet. Go on the internet. Do anything else, like, for erotica purposes. Nine and a Half Weeks wasn't necessarily taken as such an inspirational text as this is, because, you know... Funnily enough, there have been stories of, you know, it's like hardware stores, they're selling out of zip ties. Hardware stores are selling out of this type of tape. There was an article in the Times just a couple weeks ago about how um, various stores like Target are now selling things. I think it's called a vibrating love ring, which is what (laughs) for the use of a gentleman. Yeah, basically it's a cock ring. You know, but but yeah, I mean, people are having terrible sex all over America. All over (laughs) this planet Earth. But, yeah, I mean, again, you know, the Target tie-in or Toys in Babeland. Oh, God. 
Yeah. Which is just around the corner. Maybe we should stop by. It's just it's around the corner for me. No, they have... Yeah, so... But, but just... This is part of the corporate synergy, the brand management, mm-hmm. you know, the multi-platform jibber-jabber that simply was not in existence when during the heyday of Adrian Lyne's filmmaking career. Imagine. Imagine if there had been nine and a half weeks product tie-ins. Literal tie-ins. Yeah. Oh! When there was no Jezebel. <laughs> Who would have thought we would be so nostalgic for the Reagan era? (laughs) At the risk of sounding so thuddingly, really just too obvious, it's confusing. I mean, when this book came out and there were, it spawned a bazillion think pieces. What doesn't? That's true, (laughs) yes. What does not generate... Instant indignation and a million think pieces. But when the book came out in 2011 or 2012, there were those, there were some pieces that said, yes, the book is terrible, but if it gets people talking about sex and considering different sex practices, that's all for the good. You know, which it is, but then... But, it's a, but, but then it's something as, as anarchic, as uncontrollable as sex. For that to be turned into a teachable moment, yeah. that also seems very symptomatic of 2015. Mm-hmm. And that for the various products in the book and the movie to then become things to be purchased, it, it seems so, I guess, paradoxical in a way. Could the book or, and or the film introduce people to things they might want to explore. Yes. But uh, then you think about predecessors to Fifty Shades of Grey, like books by Desaad or The Story of O or Matai. I mean, this is, I mean, that is, that is about the utter anarchic darkness of sex. That this is, this is, BDSM or sex taken to its most extreme, which is a, a, a kind of dissolution or death, whether yes. literal or metaphorical. Uh, yeah, that's that is that doesn't exist anywhere in 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 book or film. They just get married in the third <laughs> book. Spoiler alert! Sorry, film comment podcast listeners. Viola Luca has spoiled the trilogy. Yeah, obviously, yeah. If you're reading it for the plot, not going to be a great experience. If you're reading it for the distinction between the inner goddess and the subconscious, <laughs> there's so much more for you. So yes. More. Yes. So, what did you think of uh, Duke Burgundy? What's interesting is that. It points to, and I think Fifty Shades of Grey does as well, how maybe the sub-dom relationship isn't particularly interesting. Yeah. It's really hard to theatricalize it, to make it dramatic. I guess there are just only so many ideas circulating. I mean, I guess it can be interesting to see how that power can shift, but again... Yeah, there isn't anything that's all that inherently interesting about it. Yeah, I mean, I was also sort of 
I was with that film for most of it, and then it was just like the moth-like quotation really pissed me off because it looked so bad. Mm. It was like un- like it was like an insult. It's like you're not gonna do it better, mm. like digitally especially. And mm-hmm. then he also um, like the burning letter, like during the fugue mm-hmm. states, and just I mean overall the film just looked really visually over the summer. I wrote about the Film Society's Radley Metzger retrospective. Yes. And he did a film, I think it came out in 75 or 76, called The Image. And clearly the films of Radley Metzger are an important precursor to Peter Strickland's um, Duke of Burgundy. And a lot of what Metzger did, you know, was safely within the, the boundaries of softcore. Yeah. But there are some, like this film, The Image, which is about an SM relationship or a BDSM relationship between two women, which then expands to a, a menage a trois, a dude gets involved. And that is some raw stuff. <laughs> really raw. I mean, kind of shockingly so. Yeah. And in fact, almost to the point where, you know, I consider myself to be a lady who can take a lot. Yeah. Well, what was, what was so shocking to you? Well, just that there are scenes of the the sub mm-hmm. chained up and and whipped and screaming uh to a point where it does not seem that she's screaming for pleasure like the, i mean the film just it's it's very dark it's mm-hmm. very dark now i don't know what the re- release or exhibition history of metzger's the image was i mean i i can't imagine that it was playing at like the beekman theater or the ziegfeld <laughs> I'm sure it, it screened. Safe bet, safe bet. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it screened. You know, along along the deuce in the mid seventies, but um, but Metzger, he's just kind of an interesting person to think about mm-hmm. with these current adaptations. Or well, not that the Duke of Burgundy is an adaptation of a book. I don't think it is, isn't it? An no. original screenplay, but just this well, original screenplay without a third act. Yes. I feel like so much because it's just like it's like it's like towards the end of it, it's just like Lady Gaga level cultural sampling, just sort of repeating things to repeat them. They tangentially have something to do with the subject, but not really. And it's just it's like all this flash, and then there's not a terrible amount underneath. I also, yeah. I mean, I also to be fair, I did read a lot of pieces about the film oh madame why well i work for a magazine magazine that's obsessed you need to go in like anastasia Steele, (laughs) blindfold (laughs) earbuds oh oh wait i did think of another thing just as i don't somehow duke of burgundy led to this this is also something we mentioned in email Mm -hmm. but every single film that we've talked about has been about heterosexual coupling yes if we're talking about studio-related films that were very raw in what they depicted on screen, we have got to mention Cruising. Yes. Uh, because, and I think the great Nathan Lee mm-hmm. pointed this out when he reviewed the film, when, when Cruising was restored and released in a couple of theaters in New York in 2007. Nathan, if I'm misquoting you, forgive me, but <laughs> he said that in revisiting the film, one of the more one of the most fascinating things about it was that at where does he go like the anvil one of those really serious leather SM bars in the meatpacking district like the anvil or manhole mm-hmm. 
Nathan said something like, what's most surprising is that the, the smile on everyone's face at the bar. Like, yeah. these are dudes all having a really good time. And <laughs> there's someone, nothing is left to the imagination, in a sling, getting anally fist-fucked. Yeah. And, um... Cruising is a film that really divides people. Either they think it's just the most homophobic product out there, or there are others who, of various generations, hetero and homo, um, who think it is really quite advanced and that there's something, particularly in the documentary aspects of the film. Oh, of course, yeah. When, when Friedkin, like, got the permission from the owners of the Anvil manhole... Mm-hmm leather hut whatever <laughs> and and shot the actual bar habitues yeah that is uh i, I think there's something so remarkable remarkable about that oh, and that, that, and that, that was that, that was shown in a film that was released in 1980 yeah or the fact that he you know he the the final sort of you know he goes to the peep show yeah and then the final climax you know he goes to uh central park you see sort of like they're again this documentary go with like there are these families and then he's going there for like he's meeting this gay serial killer mm-hmm. like there like there is that but i mean my biggest problem with it is just that i don't know if it's like a bad police pr- procedural or if it's just sort of like it, the narrative just breaks down because he literally cannot handle being in this world anymore servino paul servino mm-hmm. like his character, like, the way his character, like, just, like, just is, like, so exhausted. Like, the Paul Servino looks like shit in that movie, but there's a certain point where he's just sort of, like, just forget it. Yeah. Just go home well, to your girlfriend. Like, it's so weird. Yeah, go home to your girlfriend. Go home to Karen Allen, all decked <laughs> out in SS regalia. But, but, I mean, this is what also makes cruising so endlessly fascinating, is that all the bizarre tensions in the film. Yeah. And... You know, the most obvious tension being Al Pacino himself, who clearly is so uncomfortable being in this movie. (laughs) And um, I I read parts of Friedkin's autobiography, Mm -hmm. which is actually quite good. And he talked about, you know, making the film. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he and Pacino really did not get along. When it came time to promote the film, Pacino had absolutely nothing to do with it. There is the part involving Pacino and the procedural and the gay serial killer and the weird backstory where the gay serial killer had a bad relationship with his dad. I mean, that's some pretty corny stuff. I, yeah, exactly. Really corny yeah. stuff. And, and yet, yeah, and then there are all these scenes, again, they're not documentary scenes, but they're documentary-like. Yes. Scenes of what, uh, of various aspects of gay life in pre-AIDS New York. Exactly. I mean, this this film came out literally months before the first um, documented case of what was then called GRID or gay cancer. Yeah. So, yeah. But it is that tension that makes it kind of endlessly fascinating. Also, I mean, never a better scene with poppers. <laughs> Which, in the version that I saw, I mean, I did not see the... I did not see the re-release. I just saw it on, like, Amazon streaming or something. But... Freak, like, he obviously, like, went back in and, like, recolored it, so it's, like, he does it. He, like, they break it open, and then it's just, like, all these colors, and he's, like, doing the pogo, and it was just, like, it was just an amazing cinematic moment where it's just, like, 
that's as close as you're going to get to showing how it felt like this amorphous flow of sexuality that's happening in the background. Like, it's so... It's incredible. Yeah. Well, shout out to Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Billy Friedkin. 